April 3rd, 2007. It's a Watt from Pedro show.
Watt from Pedro Show. Uh, we started with Tapestry and Sound. Something from Live in Seattle, John Coltrane. Of course, that's only Jimmy Garrison. And I've played that before, but I thought I should play it again in honor of my guest. We'll hear him uh, talk from Brooklyn over the phone to me. We did that a little earlier today. Uh, Tony Mamone. Uh, big bass hero to me, uh, incredible cat, um, a lot of influence on my uh, bass playing, um, he's played with a number of bands, Peru probably uh, people know of, but he's done all kinds of stuff, and we'll talk about things he's done and is doing, um, after Mr. Garrison worked the bass there, we had Miku with in you, in me, a dream. And now here's uh, the first part of the interview I did with Tony. Well, like I said earlier today, April 3rd, 2007. And uh, we'll go up to the first hour and then the rest of it in the second hour. I'm here in my pad in Pedro because I got to leave for tour soon and uh, couldn't make it over to Brother Matt's the love grotto and the pleasure point there so missing brother matt but glad to have tony on board and uh yeah we actually spoke first uh sunday on d boone's birthday a few days ago april 1st but uh some fucking hums and stupidness on my part screwed up the recording so we had to do it again today and i'm much grateful to tony for uh bearing with me and coming through. He is a true bass brother. So uh, here's that spiel now. A lot from Pedro show. New York Pedro. Yeah, and uh, this time I've got it together. Yeah, man. Techno, right? There's just so much. You know, one little dot isn't dotted or one little T isn't crossed and the whole shebang is just somewhere else. Yeah, it was totally uh, blanketed with, um, <laughs> but it was what you had to say it was so fucking happening. So let's go for it again, man. Uh, well, you know, our conversation is still pretty fresh in my mind. So uh, yeah, good. I mean, we started at the beginning. Uh, yeah. You on base. Yeah, man. I remember you asked me uh, what my first amp was. It was like a trainer. Do you, do you remember those things? They had a fan in them. They were so heavy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and the 215s in two cabinets. So I had them both in my living room. And, uh, you know, it was something along. I think my first bass back then was a Rickenbacker. I don't even know why I got a Rickenbacker, but I got a P-Bass shortly thereafter. <laughs> right, but actually, you told me you had some oh, plastic right. body thing in Florida. That's right. You see, see, man, you're a good reporter because <laughs> you remember. Yeah. So what? I remember now. Yeah, it was like because you had moved from Cleveland. Right, and I remember I brought a little red SG down with me. I was picking around on that like a little guitar, you know, and just. 
you know, not really, I mean, you know, playing some chords, but not really feeling it. And then somebody left this Univox, like, semi-hollow body that was, you know, it truly was. It was like a kind of plastic body with a wooden neck. And um, I remember I had some old stereo that you could, it had a jack that you could plug a quarter-inch jack into. And so I said, well, look at that, you know. So I plugged in, and there it was. Like, I had some bass cooking. This is right before the trainer you're playing right through the stereo. Yeah. And I remember I was listening to uh, one of those Rolling Stone bootlegs. You know, I think it was called Bright Lights. Uh, yeah, certainly I have Bright Lights. Something City, you know? And I thought, oh, yeah, man. Like, so they were playing all these old blues tunes, and so I noticed that I could just thump right along with just right out of the box. So I'm like, oh. So I started pulling out, like, all these records that I'd been listening to. I'd been, like, listening to a bunch of blues and and jazz. I remember I was listening to Ahmed Jamal. Like, I was really digging his piano playing back then. Oh, yeah, I read about him in the Miles autobiography. That was his fa uh, favorite oh, piano yeah? player, but he had to settle for playing with Red Garland, and it always bummed him out. Right, because Ahmed didn't want to get on the Miles train. <laughs> <laughs> but he would have been with Coltrane. <laughs> well, man, you know, and I wonder if he ever had second thoughts about that, you know? Yeah, Miles said that piano was too busy and stuff, and he liked the way that... Ahmed laid out and stuff and gave space. Yeah. He was so beautiful, so lyrical. And um, I remember I was listening to him, and I was listening to, like, the Duke Ellington trio stuff. And I think I also mentioned, too, that record, that one, uh, This One's for Blanton, which was uh, a record that Duke uh, had dedicated to uh, Jimmy Blanton who was like one of his favorites and who was one of the first bass players to go up there and get melodic on him, you know? Yeah, yeah. Nobody had done that before. Jimmy Blanton was one of the first ones, so... Groundbuster. Yeah, man, he did one of... He did this record with Ray Brown. It's just a duet, man. It's on Pablo. That, that record, man, I'd recommend that to anybody. It's just a beautiful record and... Um, like Dose. And then there's another really great record that Duke made with Coltrane. And um, it's called In a Sentimental Mood. And, like, yeah. you know, that's like, I think that's one of the first songs on the record. And, you know, like when, uh, when Coltrane plays that line, that theme, and then, and then, and then, uh, and then Duke Ellington answers him. It's a dialogue. It's like one of those minutes. That, that's one of those moments in music. That, like, when you hear it for the first time, you never forget it, you know? Like, I remember the first time I heard the television record, you know? I, there were some moments like that for me on that record, you know? Yeah, yeah. Fred Smith. But anyway, I was, I was listening to a lot of jazz and blues, and so um, I started thumping along, and, uh, you know, one thing led to the other. But, you know, there was no one to jam with down in Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> like, I didn't know any musicians down there. Uh, you know, I was just dry. I was hacking. I was driving a cab, you know. So anyway, I ended up going back up to Cleveland, and I moved into this place called the Plaza, which is over on 32nd and Prospect. It was a building that Alan Ravenstein and Dave Bloomquist had, 
and they had a bunch of uh, artists and musicians living there, and I heard about it, and I moved in, and all of a sudden I realized that Peter Lochner is across the hall from me, and um, Albert Dennis, this really great bass player, was living upstairs. So, you know, Albert, everybody was going, you know, walking up and down the stairs, and of course these old buildings, you hear everything. Everybody could hear me something, you know. <laughs> so the one guy, Al Ray, uh, uh Albert Dennis, he goes, hey, you know, if you ever, you know, if you ever want to come up and talk bass or grab a lesson or anything, man, like feel free. So, I, you know, I went up to this cat's place and you know he showed me how to play some scales and and just all just opened up real fast for me. I'm like, oh man, yeah, I could get with this. So I was spending some time just really practicing and um, before I really. Anything really happened down there, like on the Ubu scene? I remember um, I met this uh, I met this black dude. He said they were looking for a bass player, with uh, and it was like 93rd and Union, which is which was pretty hardcore ghetto for Cleveland. Actually, pretty pretty much still is kind of wild over there. And um, I remember I had one of those trainer cabinets. I had to bring my cabinet. I had it like on my shoulder, like I just like kind of. <laughs> leaning on the stair, leaning on the wall, and like just kind of huffing up the huffing up the stairs on my own with my bass in my other hand, and I think I had like you know a backpack, you know, and I was afraid to leave anything like down for a minute, you know. But anyway, once I got in there, those people were so beautiful, and the fact that I could play some rock, this guy Willie, he was so into that because he wanted to play like some of like the band of Gypsy stuff oh, and yeah. like some of the Cream stuff. And, um, you know, I was way into, into playing that stuff. So that was really my first band, you know. And uh, I played with those guys for a little while, but it was kind of, you know, they, they, they weren't doing a lot, you know. But what they were doing were, was stuff that you'd never, ever forget. Like, I remember our first gig was at a place called the Velvet Rail on Union, uh, which was a topless joint. And we were we were the entertainment in between, like you know. I mean, I guess there was like an early show and a late show. And I think Willie knew the bar owner, so he's gonna let us play. So we went in there and played our little set, you know. And I thought to myself, well, now, okay, this is cool, but you know, there's got to be a little more. I mean, we'd go over to dude's house to practice, and like. You know, I'd see, like, guys would have, like, you know, guy'd have a holster, like, with his gun in it, like, just kind of on his bed, like, cowboy style. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. And then I moved down to the plaza, and I, I kept practicing. I was still playing with those guys, but we didn't have that much stuff going on. And then um, Peter Lautner came over one day. He brought a six-pack. He brought, like, this reggae sampler. Um, he brought, like, a Link Ray record. And he brought like the first Bob Marley record, and um, you know we sat down there and we had a couple beers, and and uh, and Peter just like you know that cat was such such a great musician, and he had this way you know, he was so masterful like the way he would grab a tune and start playing it that you could just jump right in and you were in it on that level with him, and. Uh, you know, one thing led to the other was Peter, and, you know, right away, like, Peter wanted a gig, you know, I mean, he had, at that point, he had already left Perubu, and uh, so he and I and Anton Fear, we started practicing 
out at Anton's house out in Euclid down in the basement. And, like, we were learning stuff like, you know, Calvary Cross and, like, Prove It, the television tune. And, uh, you know, what else did we do? This is the band Friction. He called yeah, friction. yeah, that was Friction. And that was, like, really, like, my first band, like, what, like what you might say, like, within the community, you know? Right. Oh, they, uh, they were still called Rocket from the Tombs when he left? Yeah, like, what happened was Peter and, and David and Cheetah Chrome, those cats had, had done Rocket from the Tombs, and then, um, and then David, for whatever reason, that, that, that thing kind of morphed into Perugu with some different players, like Peter and, uh, and David and, and Scott Krause, um, were the only guys that, that went from Rocket to, to Ubu. Okay. Um, now, like, Alan Ravenstein, like, played on, I think the way it worked was, Alan played on the first Ubu single. And then the second Ubu single, um, I think Dave Taylor played synthesizer, and Alan, you know, I can't remember what it was, Alan kind of stepped out of the band for a minute, and then they were at a place where, uh, like I told you on a Sunday, nobody was really, really happy rocking bass. Everybody was kind of right. taking turns playing bass, but was really looking towards playing guitar. They had Tim Wright. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tim Wright, Tom Herman, and, uh, and Peter, and then it went to where it was just Tom Wright, and uh, 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 Tim Wright and, and Tom Herman are playing guitars, and uh, and then they and then uh, I guess what it was was David and, and Tom came to see the first Friction show, which um, was um, at a small space up in Cleveland Heights. And uh, after the show, they asked me if I wanted to uh, to jam with the band, and and I said yeah. And Peter, at that time, he was coming up to New York a lot. He was writing a lot of articles for Cream Magazine. And he was really, really trying to get into television. He was, you know, he was hanging out, you know, with Patti Smith and, and television. Like, you know, Peter knew, Peter knew everybody. Did you go to that uh, Piccadilly Inn gig? Yeah, man. Because that's the first. The bar. <laughs> oh, you were tending the bar. Yeah, man. Because that's, that's the no first. Television gig in Cleveland, right? That's right. And uh, I've got uh, somebody flowed me some CDs of that. Like, is Richard Hell on that record? Is Richard Hell on that gig? Uh, or was it? Was it? Was it? Was it already uh, Fred? It's seventy. I can't remember. It's seventy-five. I think it Why might be you know, Richard Hell. Yeah, it was Richard Hell, and. Um, yeah, there was a bunch of bands played up there. Uh, Johnny Thunders played up there. Those are the two big ones that I remember. It was two days, right? What was that gig like? It was like amazing. It was an amazing show. Like to, uh, I mean, the sound wasn't the best in there, you know, but uh, it was really good. But I gotta say that like my moment with television 
didn't really come until the first time, like, Uber was going to play up at CBGB's. And the night before we were in town, we went down there, and I walked in there, and they were playing Marquee Moon. And um, that was one of those moments, like, where, you know, you hear something, and you kind of have an epiphany, because you have never heard anything like that before, and something clicks inside your brain. Um, those guys, they didn't have any pedals. Like, they had a they had, I think they had a couple of twin reverbs, and I think... Uh, you know, I think Tom Verlaine was playing like a Jaguar, and I think Richard Hell was, pl I mean, uh, uh, Richard, uh, oh, the other. Lloyd. Richard Lloyd, thank you. He was playing, um, Telecaster, and, uh, and Fred was just playing like a P bass. So, and, and there's no pedals, but the sound was so amazing, man. The way it was vibrating around the room, that was just a moment I'll never forget. Now, Going back to the Piccadilly, when I saw them play there, I mean, they played Little Johnny Jewel. It was really great, but it um, maybe it was the acoustics in the room and the PA, which was nothing like what they had at CBGB's. Nothing at all. Um, you know, it didn't, it didn't ring the bell as hard as it did when I saw them at CBGB's, like with a real PA system. But um, that was a funny gig for me because the, the plaza, the place where I lived at, was just two blocks down the street. So I'd walk down there and I'd ten bar three nights a week, make a load of cash, and then the rest of the time I was just practicing. Right. And, uh, yeah, so, so we did that gig with Peter. And, uh, and then I did a few other gigs with Peter, but Peter was... Um, he was coming up to New York a lot, and, uh, you know, he was drinking a lot. He was drinking a lot, taking a lot of pills. and He had a really strong constitution, but it wasn't strong enough to withstand that, you know, week in and week out, month in and month out. And, like, he was the first cat that we lost, you know? Yeah. He was young, too. I don't. I don't even think. I don't even think Peter was like 26 years old when he passed. Wow. Yeah, man. An amazing talent. Like I said the other day, like Peter was definitely one of the main, um, one of the one of my main influences as far as you know, listening to music and playing music. Another person who had a really profound effect on me was Scott Krause because Scott always worked at record stores and so Scott was always had this deep 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 record collection and uh, I remember I'm, I, I mean I, I'm not kidding you I've spent I've spent like more than a thousand hours listening to music with Scott Krause like you know and like just all the stuff that I'd never heard before like the Velvets you know like like Eno like like those really early Fleetwood Mac records, like with Peter Green on guitar. Right. Um, I remember Scott had this, he had this Peter Green record called The End of the Game, which <laughs> we used to like sit up there and listen to that music and, you know, roll with the hashish and it would just get darker and darker and darker and the music would get so deep, like listening to like that Fripp stuff, that Fripp and Eno stuff and, uh, 
just really just all sorts of music. And, uh, you know, Scott and I, like, we we bonded that way, you know, like listening to the dub, man. Like, we, we were listening to dub way back, like, you know, like back like when, you know, like a lot of the music that you would get would be uh, white label stuff, like from Jamaica. And Sun Ra, like these Sun Ra records that you could tell that, like, the Sun Ra band actually, like, they were hand-coloring, <laughs> hand-coloring, like, the labels and stuff. So, Scotty and I, we listened to, to all that stuff. So, those cats, like, for me, coming up from, you know, I mean, back then in the early 70s, Florida, man, it was, uh, it was still pretty disco down there, you know? Which, I got nothing against disco. I actually love disco. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, uh, I hadn't, I mean, like, you know, I had, I, you know, I had like a Velvets record. I, I had some of the stuff, but, you know, coming back up to Cleveland, and Cleveland at that time was really cooking because, uh, all the bands were coming through, like T-Rex came through and Roxy Music came through. And we saw Bob Marley play at a small club, like at the Agora the small Agora back over over there on 20, what was that, like 23rd Street or 22nd Street? I played under uh, some place called the Pop Shop. Yeah, the Pop Shop. Did, did you guys rock the Pop Shop? Yeah, with Black Flag in 83, I think. So it was like its last days. I, I, I think yeah. that, that Agora burned down or something. Yeah. I remember yeah. the Romantics were upstairs. I saw Bob Marley at UCLA in 79. Man, I feel like we're lucky to have, you know, to have seen that band and seen Bob, you know? Oh, yeah, he's incredible. And Family Man, we were talking, that guy was righteous family on the bass. You know, anybody that really wants to understand bass, just grab any Bob Marley record and zero in on Family Man because dude is not playing like, you know, he's not doing like Jocko. He's not doing like Entwistle. <laughs> You know, he's like playing really, really kind of slow a lot of the time. But what that cat does with the space, right? Yeah. He's a master of the one drop, you know? They let the one drop because, like, if you're grooming with it and then they let that one drop away, you kind of, you've been leaning against the bass and for a moment it's not there. And then they come up and catch you on the upswing, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Pushes it good. Catch you flat-footed and keep you dancing. <laughs> now, uh, I heard you guys had a residency at a place called Pirate Cove. Later was Peabody Underground when I played it there on the flats. Man, that was a spot, Mike. That place, that was so formative, like, for Ubu, because, like, you know, check it out. Like, we were rehearsing, like, we do... Like, we would rehearse, I can't really remember, I think it was kind of like, rehearse like on a Sunday night, and then meet again on the Monday, take a day off, and then play on Wednesday, uh, like those were our rehearsal days. Then Thursday, we knew we had this gig at the Pirates Coast, so it was a great laboratory for us to like, you know, write the tunes, and then go right down there and see how they, you know how they stuck on the wall, you know? Right. Typical, 
you know, 70s joint, like, all, like, black walls, you know, typical, uh, with a little, a little backstage, and then, then they expanded eventually, but originally it was pretty modest operation down there, but for us it was great because we had a place to play, and we had a place to, you know, invite our friends to play with us, like Devo would come up and play with us, and and Huey would come and play with us, and all of Peter Lochner's bands would would always like share a gig here and there with us. Now the uh, first thing you record is the, is the single, right? Right, like they had they had already um, the original band already had the two singles under their belts. They had uh, Thirty Seconds Over Tokyo, and they had Final Solution. Yeah. So the first single I cut with the band was Street Waves. Cloud one oh no, the other side was My Dark Ages. Oh, that's right. And, you know and it was on David's label, right? Uh, Arthur. Yeah, yeah, Hey Arthur. Um, you know, that tune, you know, like, you know the way it opens up? It opens up like with like a, just like a little lick on the bass that goes like, ba-da-da-da. It's like, it's like D, G sharp, E on the A string, and then hit the open E, right? Right. And that was just, so much of the ooh stuff was just stuff I was practicing. <laughs> you know? Because, like, like, you know, I was, like, I was working on octaves, you know? And then uh, and I was just like, wow, that sounds so good. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that was kind of, like, one of the first things that I, I wrote with Ubu was... Uh, Street Waves. I remember that other one I told you the other night was when at that first rehearsal, um, they were everybody was like you know like just jamming hard and there was all this noise and I remember like you know Al Dennis always telling me that like you know playing bass remember that space is the other side of bass so if you choose not to play that's as important as when you do play and so. These guys were all like playing, and I was trying to find a place to fit in. And all of a sudden, I remembered that, and so I just stopped, you know. Yeah. Turned up the amp a little bit, and then I just hit that big open A, you know, and then like fretting like the A on the G string, just bam, and then just stopped and let all their like cacophony ring over that, and then just played like the next, the next note, which was B, and plus like. I was really into that whole giant steps theory, you know, like coming up like with, you know, like something that's, that might be just called like, well, just like a simple like riff or ostinato or, or whatever anyone would call it. Figure. And that underneath something that's much more like dense and, and full of information could be a good thing to do. And uh, so for me, like Ubu was great back then because I was so into you know, like studying stuff and, and, and just working on bass that I had this I had this wonderful opportunity to uh try out all my stuff like in a live situation and you know, I was really happy with that, you know. Then the first album, uh Modern Dance. Right, and the first the first album, you know, the first two singles we recorded at the at the Hammond's other studio, which they had on Euclid Avenue. I can't remember the name of that studio, but I know that it, it wasn't called Suma. That's what they 
called their new studio, which was out in Painesville in this beautiful house, like, you know, like on top of a hill, like at the edge of the hill were trees, and it went down into this ravine. And, oh, yeah. Uh, I, I, got to, I was telling you, I got to do a fire hose record there from Ohio. right. Just because you guys recorded there, and it was fall, so all the trees were orange and yellow, and it was righteous. Yes, isn't that, wasn't that an amazing, I mean, it still is, like, uh, um, Paul Hammond is still rocking it hard out there. I mean, him and David are just working, just finishing a numbers band record uh, out there. And uh, anyway, going out to Suma and recording was just like a dream come true, because the first studio was amazing. And just to, I, I can remember, I, I was riding my bike over the Williamsburg Bridge stand, and I was thinking back about that and thinking that we were going to have this conversation. And that was the first time I was in a studio. And I remember we were mixing streetways, and I understood that, you know, all the faders on the console control, uh, like, individual sounds from individual instruments. And uh, that just blew me away, like, the fact that, you know, we, you could have that much control over a record. And uh, so when we got out to Suma, you know, Ken Hammond, Paul's dad, he had built the board that we were to record on out there. He actually built the board. And because he had had a long career as a radio engineer, he had, and I, I believe Paul still has the most extensive, uh, like, tube microphone collection in the whole state of Ohio. I mean, for sure the state of Ohio. Uh, maybe even east of the Mississippi. I don't know, but I remember looking at the mic closet and just seeing all these amazing German microphones. And remember wow. how that live room is there? Oh, yeah. You know, with the big wooden floor and the fireplace. So Yeah, we did an album called From Ohio there because, yeah, it was done in Ohio. Mike, i got to hear that record, man. Yeah, it was great working with them cats. And, and, and plus it had, you know, you guys' history and so influential on us. So you go there, and you were telling me, in those days you had all the tunes worked out before you got, went in the studio. Yeah, we had everything worked out. I mean, at that point, we already had, we already had like some of the songs under our belts that were that were going to become other songs. But you know, we were really disciplined. Like we had, you know, we had like a certain amount of tunes that we were that we said, okay, we're going to do this. And you know, back then, man, vinyl, right? You right. had to figure it out because you really could only get twenty-two minutes her side. Yeah. So it was a really easy uh, way to uh, to be disciplined about how much you were actually going to, you know, set out to do. Oh, the last tune, Chinese Radiation, that was yeah. improvised. That was improvised. And you know what? I was thinking about our conversation. Also, that song, Sentimental Journey, that's an improvisation. Okay. Um, now, Chinese Radiation, uh, I remember Tom had that guitar lick, which is a great lick. And, um, and we had played that, and then uh, 
somehow we got this idea that this piano piece that I'd been playing and Scott had been playing drums to would work really good as an end to Chinese radiation. Yeah. But that was an improvisation, um, albeit a short one, whereas Sentimental Journey, I think that's like at least like a four-minute tune. Yeah. That's the one like where David's breaking glass. Right, walking through a house, it sounds like. Right. And or like the story of the lyrics. Right, what he's doing is... Um, We'd been drinking orange juice, and back then, like, I mean, like, for whatever reason, like, the orange juice was in, like, those Tropicana bottles. Yeah. So they were all stacked up. <laughs> and so, you know, at one point, David got the idea, oh, yeah, big stone fireplace in the recording studio, lots of glass bottles. Mm. <laughs> so that's like, and that's like an amazing thing, like, how... When the first loud hit drops, that actually I think the bottle breaks, and then we drop the hit. You know, well, that was kind of improvised as well. Um, all the other tunes, like even over my head, like with the guitar solo and stuff, it it was it was it wasn't always worked out. Like you know exactly how long it was going to be. Like if Tom wanted to keep going, he'd keep going, and we'd just keep riffing along with him. And then as he'd bring the solo to an end, then the bass would start playing harmonics again. Like, we, we would have little tricks like that to signal to each other where we were going. In Cues. The tune. But basically, like I said, yeah, we were, it, it was worked out ahead of time. Like, we were pretty much, you know, rehearsed and ready to go. And you made it for a label, like a little side mouse thing off of Mercury called Blank. Right, um, Clive Bernstein, who managed like Def Leppard and all these huge like metal bands. I mean, I know Def Leppard was one of them, uh, like the biggest one. And uh, he had gotten a hold of those Ubu singles. And I remember he came to see us at the Pirates Cove one night. Little dude wearing an army jacket, you know, with a long beard, you know. And uh, apparently, like, an industry insider who is, like, really, is really well-respected and well-known. But that's what he did. He formed, like, a little subsidiary label, Blank, uh, but it really was phonograph. Um, I remember getting, like, all the James Brown records, like, you know... Uh, uh, <laughs> they said, hey, man, you want some records? I said, you guys got any James Brown records? <laughs> which I got that anthology record, which is a great record. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, that's what happened. And um, and then we were out on the road, right? Right. And that's where uh, us Minutemen, D. Boone, Georgie, and myself, went and saw you guys at the Whiskey. And it was an incredibly profound experience for us. Like, wow. Man, I can't believe we had heard the record before that, but man, live it was like, oh my god! You know what, man? Like, it's just the challenge of music is trying to get that live experience recorded. It's really hard to do. Well, I think you guys did it, man. That gig was like, wow! It blew our minds, and it gave us the confidence to try our own thing with Minuteman. Uh, your bass playing a big effect on me. That lick in uh, non-alignment pack. 
and street waves. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the way you make it breathe with the holes, and it's just great. Yeah, man, it's all about breathing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, big time. But to have it taught to you in the moment, you know, watching the sensei deliver the lesson, it was righteous. And plus, it's it's also a gig, man. It's a trip. So it's different than a, a school. Well, it's a kind of school. It was a trip for us. We really, the really the loved that. The way the guys went to school, like we... You know, you go and you see, you see, you see each other play, and um, I remember seeing you play, and uh, and I was I was blown away like by the abandon that like you bring to, to to the art of playing, and actually when I saw you, that had a really profound effect on me that I needed. You know, like we, you know, like you take like you take something from everyone, and like you know, if you're really on the path, like you see somebody great play, you walk away inspired and influenced. You know. Thank you, Tony. You, bro- yeah, well, I thought you were going to say, "Hey, that's those are my licks." <laughs> <laughs> I'd be pretty fast to steal some of your licks, man. <laughs> so uh, Scott lost the boat. That night, he forgot yeah, where it was yeah, parked. Like he couldn't find the boat. Woke up in the morning, he's looking and looking and looking, and no van, you know. <laughs> so it took us, it took us a while because, you know, man, like, LA's a big town. You could do some, you know, like, you can walk a long time and not even go that far. <laughs> yeah. But we found it, you know. Man, those were some good times, those early tours, you know. Well, then you guys go overseas, and it's a lot different, right? Big uh, acceptance. Well, their scene, their punk scene, had already been going, and ours was kind of tiny. And so, uh, yeah, Ubu has some uh, recognition, some validation on a gig goer level. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we did. Uh, we were on rough trade at that point, so. We were playing like with a lot of the rough trade bands, um, uh, uh, like you know. I remember we did a gig with Rip Rig and Panic, and like this was like you know like you know I hadn't heard stuff like this. These these were people who were into punk, but they were also like really into funk. And, oh yeah, uh, some of those guys uh, came from the pop group. That band was pretty yeah, wild. Yeah, and the pop group like. We did a bunch of shows with the pop group. Yeah, they, and, they had some um, smoking bass. Those are great guys, man. I wish, you know, I wish, um, I wish I was still in touch with, with those guys. That bass player was killing. Yeah, monster. Wow. I met the singer a year and a half ago. I played festival with his band Mafia. And what are they called? Mafia, and he had wow. Doug Wimbish on bass, who's pretty. Yeah, I like that guy a lot. I think he's from Connecticut or something, but man, he was. But the the singer, uh, Mark Stewart, that's his name. He, that's right. He still has that voice. He's a really tall cat. Yeah. See, because these guys were they were just records, you know. We never they never toured over here. We never saw them. It was different than Ubu, so we only knew them from their sounds. And so when I met him last year or a year and a half ago, it was like, wow, you're tall. 
<laughs> yeah, he was a big guy, right? Yeah, especially for England, you know. And uh, All those told a lot of uh, jokes. But uh, he told me they were just teenagers. Yeah, they were young. God, they well, could we play like motherfuckers, too. though, man. Yeah, but they were really young. I mean, like teenagers. And then running across these great bands, like, you know, doing a tour with the Gang of Four and Delta Five, like playing, I think I think it was something like 23 or 24 shows. Well, or maybe it was 30. It was a huge amount of shows, one after the other. We were all, like, in a bus. And it wasn't even like a tour bus of, like, what you have now. It was more like a like a traveling coach. Yeah. And uh, oh, that was like a really good time. And Hugo and John King and all those guys. And, and then uh, Delta Five, like Best, and, and uh, that whole crew. Oh, they, they had two bass players. Yeah, they had two bass players. Roz, uh, Best played guitar. I can't remember the other cat's name who played the other bass. But it was just like, that was the time. People were just trying just different stuff, fun stuff. And then seeing all these great bands like Susie, Susie and the Banshees and, and seeing like the pop group. And um, and I remember the first time I saw the Mekons, man. Little did I know that that group of people were going to have such a huge impact on me and that I was going to end up like, you know, playing like Steve Goulding the drummer, he comes to the studio now and like, I mean, Steve's the kind of drummer, he can like hear a song, like you play him the song in the control room and then he'll go out and he kind of like can lay it out like in a couple takes. Um, and then, you know, John Langford, um, still going, he's one of the few people I still go out on the road with. But I remember the first time I saw them was, um, was up in Leeds. We were sh we were sharing a bill with them, and um, I thought, who are who is this crazy band? <laughs> Everybody's dancing on stage, and uh, so man, yeah, Europe was was profound. And you guys come back and you do Dubhausen. Uh, you already had some of them songs going, worked out, right? Yeah, we all, we were already playing some of those songs, and uh, you know, Dubhausen. There's uh, there's more keyboards on on dub housing. I, I was playing more keyboards than just just like practicing and playing like piano. And so out at the studio, out at Suma, there they had that beautiful grand piano. Um, beautiful. It's either a Steinway. Yeah, I think it's a Steinway. And they have like a Hammond B3. So um, you know, I played some Hammond and some uh, some piano on that and. At that point, like, Ubu was still, you know, we were still like, you know, like, kind of like a band the way we were when we had formed, but coming back from Europe, things started to change, you know, like the politics, things started to happen, and, uh, you know, like, like the guitarist and the drummer and the bass player, we wanted to go out, out on the road, you know, like Cliff Bernstein, you know, he said, you know... Howard DeVoto and the Buzzcocks, they, they want you guys to do a, a big tour with them. And, like, for me, that was like, yes, <laughs> let's do it. And uh, for Scotty, too, and for Tom. But 
uh, you know, the other guys in the band, they didn't really want to open for anyone. Like, that was like a, I think that was part of the reason. Uh, the other reason was Alan just, he, he was the landlord of the building that some of us were living in, and he had responsibilities if he wasn't comfortable leaving to go on tour. So, that, that was kind of bittersweet because here we were coming back from Europe, lots and lots of press, big shows, and the next logical thing would have been to go out and open for somebody. But uh, it didn't happen, and I think that was the beginning of uh, some disenchantment that uh, that Tom started to have. And uh, I think after that third record, uh, A New Picnic Time, um, you know, Tom, you know, gave notice and said he was stepping out. Right. And just like we had talked about the other day, um, well, the first time we'd been to Europe, uh, we had met Mayo, and some of us had recorded. Oh, yeah, um, you're on the Soldier on, Talk on Soldier record. Talk. Yeah. Right. So Mayo um, got invited into the band, and we, uh, you know, we started up again. And, and uh and, you know, I, I, I had a relationship with Tom, like a writing relationship uh, that was very, very casual, but very, very effective. Like, we came up with a lot of stuff. And um, it wasn't quite like that with Mayo, like I said the other day. He was coming from a school, I think, like where he wrote a lot of, a lot of the stuff kind of on his own. But, you know, we came up with stuff together. I remember that song, Misery Goats. First, right. first three notes on the bass, just back and forth. Because <laughs> by then I was like, I was like, you know, playing some upright, and that was one of my exercises. So I just used that for the bass line for the song. <laughs> this is for Art of Walking. Right. And, and where was that done? Is that at Suma too? Yeah, you know what? Every single Perubu album that I was involved in, except for, um, there was one record we did out in Stoughton, Massachusetts. We did it at this place, might have been called like the, the Dugout. And it was where um, Bob had done some recording. I think it's where, where Bob, uh, Bob Mould made the Sugar record. And he was telling me about it. He said it was a nice tight little studio with a trident board, and that was like where Ubu went to cut, I think the record before Story of My Life, which, oh, I can't remember which one that was, if it was, might have been, I don't think it was Worlds in Collision or Cloudland. It was after Cloudland, but, um, all the other albums we ever made, my rep, were at Suma, and I know that David now pretty much works out of out of Suma exclusively. Right. Also, that's like where uh, Scott and I made the Home and Garden records. Um, Which is your side project that you guys do while right, you're in the Uber. First side, the first real side project, um, we did some recording at a studio. Scotty started it at a studio in in like downtown Cleveland. And then actually, yeah, then we recorded that history and geography record on an A-track um, machine. 
on 8-track Otari. And like what I said yesterday, or on Monday, or Sunday, was that Scott has gone back, and uh, uh, Ryan from Exit Stencil, uh, uh, those two guys, they spent all the last summer remixing and remastering uh, History and Geography, which is the record that Scotty and I made with Jim Jones um, and Jeff on, uh, on vocals. And it's amazing, man. They did a really good job. And when you get that, you'll, you'll get a chance to hear it. Um, and Jim Jones is the guy. Because we cut that in 81, which was like such a long time ago. And, uh, you know, it still, still stands. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jim Jones is the guy who replaced Mayo, right? Mayo only lasts a couple albums. Right. And then Jim, who had already been on the road with us as a guitar tech, um, comes on um, comes on board. And, and then, that's when um, David, um, from about 82, 81 actually, David's out doing a solo thing. Um, he does one record, um, Sounds of the Sand. Then he does another one with another group that he calls the Pedestrians, which is Chris Cutler on drums and Lindsey Cooper on bassoon and like effects. And David asked me uh, to join um, if I'm interested. And so... April 3rd, 2007, it's the second hour of the Watt from Pedro show, and here's the second part of my interview with Tony Mamone earlier today over the phone with him from Brooklyn. We did some playing, and we ended up writing a record together and going on the road together. So here I am back on the road with David, Chris Cutler, and Lindsay playing like in Texas, like you know, playing shows with Reverend Horton Heat, and then us coming out and doing these songs like where Lindsay's playing like bassoon. <laughs> and uh, it was just like a total hoot. I mean, it's amazing how much time I really spent playing with David over the years because even though Ubu wasn't in effect, 81, 82, 83, 84, 85, I did lots of touring with David, made a bunch of records, um, the last record we made before we got together with Ubu again, Alan Ravenstein was playing synthesizer, Jim's playing um, guitar, uh, David Hild, the guy from The Girls, is playing uh, drums, and Chris Cutler's playing... Actually, Chris Cutler wasn't playing drums on that record. I can't remember if he is or not, but I know... He's from Henry Cow, right? Yeah, he's from Henry Cow, and he has that label, Rec Recommended Records, mm -hmm. and the guy's written some amazing books, like Chris Cutler, he's definitely someone to check out. Yeah, I first saw him play with you guys, well, you come back, I think, in 86, and two drummers, and uh, right, Firehose plays with you at the Ritz, maybe 87. Like got back into the band, and... Um, Mike, that was a lot of fun playing bass with Chris Cutler on one side and Scott Krause on the other side. Yeah. That was just like, wow. <laughs> yeah, they had My completely pen, like, different well, styles. Yeah. <laughs> but it meshed really well, the two different styles, to make this one drum sound that was really wild. I, 
we were really wild by it. Yeah, you know, you know, Mike. I swear, I think Scott Krause is truly like one of the great, great, great drummers. Yeah, I uh, dig him big time. He's just, you know, he's got a feel and a sound that's so great. And and you know, Scott never really talks about it that much, but Scott knows a lot about art, and he really brings a lot of these concepts and ideas to the way he plays drums. Yeah, I miss playing with Scott. I do a Christmas show every year um, in Cleveland, and uh, you know, usually like Home and Garden plays. And He's got his son singing for him, right? What's that? He's got his boy singing for, for him. Yeah, like Keith. Uh, Keith is singing. Keith is like a really, really good performer. And clarinet, like Alan? Rock some clarinet. And uh, he can do a mean David Thomas when he wants to. <laughs> Tom Herman was playing with us, too, because Tom's moved back to Cleveland. So the last... last um, not this past Christmas show, but the two before, Tom came in, so you basically had, you had Robert Wheeler on synthesizer, and you had Scott, and you had uh, Tom Herman, and you had Keith, and you had me, and we do a couple Ubu songs. Stuff sounded really good. Wow. There's some, some of that stuff I think's up on YouTube. Alan lives in uh, New York now? Yeah, Alan lives uptown. Uh, I've gone up to see him a few times, but, you know, I've got this really busy schedule, and so does he, so I don't see him nearly enough, you know. I'd, I'd really like to see Alan again. He flies airplanes. Yeah, yeah, so he's, he's still a traveling man. He was the wildest synthesizer player. He, I was telling you, he's the first guy we saw that played one without a keyboard. Yeah. Yeah, the old, uh, the old EML 200. They basically invented that. Uh, electronic Music Laboratories invented that. That's some outfit up in Connecticut. They, they, their whole idea with that was um, to create something to teach kids in school how, like, sound uh, can be modified. So that's like why the oscillator knob is huge, and then that goes. You have to patch out of that into like a VCA to amplify it and then out of that like into a filter or into like an envelope generator um, and it's all it's all you have to patch it's like nothing's pre-wired for you there and I remember Alan got the EML 101 which does have a, a uh, like a keyboard on it and uh, yeah he had a huge influence on me because um, in Home and Garden like I did a lot of the synthesizing stuff and, um, you know, I used an EML because I, I love the way those things sound. And I still use it like, you know, in that Book of Knots thing that Joel and Matthias and Carla and I do. Um, there's, there's, there's tons of uh, weird sounds, and some of them are from, from the EML. Wow. Now, this uh, second Ubu, it goes on to the early 90s. I think I saw one of the last gigs you guys were opening for the Pixies. Right. <laughs> And uh, you became uh, disenchanted. Well, you know what happened was, um, 
started playing with other folks more than anything else, going out on the road with the Mekons and then doing those two Bob Mould records and touring with Bob and Anton. Um, and then, you know, I'd done some playing with, with, uh, with Charles, with Frank Black, and, um, and then um, they might be giants. So we're starting to work with other folks and um, just kind of got to the point where I thought, you know, it was 1992. We had just finished Story of My Life. And uh, I just thought, you know, I gave this thing 15 years. It's been a really good time. I'm going to, you know, take some time and do some other things and, and you know, maybe try to get a, you know, try to start a studio. And that's basically what I did. You had moved to Brooklyn by this time? Yeah, I moved up to Brooklyn like in 86. So all through those other years, oh, wow. Wait, um, right. you know, I had other projects up here in New York that I was doing, like had a live drum and bass thing with Yuval Gabay, who is the drummer from Soul Coughing. Yeah. And uh, we were doing shows and we did some recordings. And, uh, you know, I was playing with a lot of different people. And uh, I just thought that, um, yeah, it was time to... Uh, you know, just, you know, take a break. Right. And then... Um, Not from music, but from Ubu. Yeah, from Ubu. Uh, and two years ago, David asked me if I wanted to uh, do some shows with Ubu, like where we would be improvising um, freely and also like some of, some of the Ubu tunes to this man called X the man with the x-ray eyes, which is this really funny, like, uh, science fiction Ray Milan film about yeah. this dude who comes up with the formula so that he can see, you know, like, through walls and stuff. <laughs> yeah, I remember that movie. And that was, like, really good, Mike. It was really good to play with David again and, like, with Michelle and Robert and... Uh, Kind of just like, you know, with the old P-Bass again, playing Streetways, playing Heart of Darkness. And uh, it felt really, really good. And, you know, I, I, like I talk to David every now and then. And, like, I talked to him about remixing something from uh, that new record of theirs. But uh, the studio here is really busy. And uh, you know, I haven't haven't gotten around to that. But Yeah, talk about your studio, uh, G. Studio yeah, man, G. Studio G Brooklyn. Because that's like really what I've been doing since 1994. That's like when we broke ground here. Uh, my friend Neil, uh, Neil Hoyne, my, my, my buddy from Cleveland, who uh, I couldn't have done the studio without. He came down here, I remember it was July 10th, and uh, we started... Uh, Two, we had two rooms, two 25 by 25 foot rooms, and we built like a nice little live room and, uh, and a control room. And uh, this was like 95. And then a cat that I had been out on the road with, Sean Haney, came on board around 97. And uh, he was a really good engineer. And he kind of brought the studio up to like a level like it was like a much more serious recording studio, not just a rehearsal demo kind of a situation. Yeah. And then he was uh, he was with me for two years, and then uh, he left, 
and uh, Joel Hamilton, who I met just out on the street having coffee. He and I got to know each other, and he was. I took him to a studio around the corner from my place, which was like a Neve studio, a much, a much more established place, because my operation was so small back then, I couldn't really like afford to have another dude on board, you know? But one thing led to the other, and Joel kept stopping by and said, hey, you know, if anything ever comes up, you know, let me know. So something came up. Like, I remember, it was like November 99. Uh, it was uh, this band called Early Edison. And uh, Joel came in and uh, and helped me uh, produce that record. And from there, one thing led to the other, and... Uh, now we've got like a two-track tape machine, uh, Pro Tools, got a bunch of German mics, and we're getting a Neve console like in about a month. So our little studio went from being ADATS and like a, a Soundcraft Ghost to uh, like Neve Studer, you know, Neumann microphones. And uh, now it's just so great because I'm still playing lots of bass, but now... I can kind of help people make their record. Yeah. But you uh still doing music. You got this Book of Knots. The Book of Knots thing. Man, we're so psyched about this because we, like Joel and I were talking the other day, and he said, you know, we didn't try to make this so that somebody would want to put it out. Which is so true because, you know, like, when you're, like, on the other side of the glass recording, you know, dudes are coming in, they got their tunes, and they have a real definite idea of, like, what they want to do. And even if you're producing, like, at, like when I'm producing someone, I always feel like I'm trying to help them realize their vision more than really try to put my thumbprint on it. So, you know, you're in the service of, of people. And, you know, people are on a budget, so there's not a lot of time for tons of experimentation because, you know, we got to make this record. You know how you know how it goes. Yeah. Got so, Jamie Cotto. Right. That precisely. So when, when we have some downtime here at the studio, what we try to do is we try to do some things that might break a few of the old rules that, well, you would never do that. I mean, you would never put a microphone in a balloon and put it in a garbage can full of water and then, you know, kick the can for a bass drum sound. Because it would take too long and it would be too weird. <laughs> but we've done stuff like that. I, I mean, I don't even think it was a balloon. I think it was like a Trojan. <laughs> it was like so funny. Uh, and uh, we did so many different like things like this. We took a microphone downstairs into the subway. Just all the fun stuff that you want to do that you never really have the, the time to do. Right. So the first record is just called The Book of Knots. And that's, that's like uh, our collection of songs that are all nautical themes, like Boston to Bombay. And uh, John Langford does, uh, he does like a kind of like a poem called The Captain's Cup, which he, he wrote this little story taken from the story of the Essex. This is the boat that the, uh, that the whale rammed and sank. 
And then these cats, they go off in three boats and they're 2,500 miles off the coast of South America and how they get back. So John tells this story. Um, and the music that is being played under the story is just like I'm playing acoustic bass and Matthias is playing a melodica with one hand and snare drum with the other hand. And Joel's playing like this little cowboy guitar, like a Maybell tone in the just some strange tuning, and Carlos playing violin. So this is like one sound of the book and notch. Then the other sound that we have is like a big old heavy rock sound. And uh, but you're playing a lot of stand-up, huh? Well, you know, not nearly as much as I sh as I should, you know. So I don't even really call myself a real stand-up player. Like, back when, in the day... Yeah, when did you start on it? Well, I started when I came up here, like in the 80s. I mean, I already had the bass. I mean, I actually did a whole record with David called Monster Walks Winter Lake that's all improvised and is all on acoustic bass. So I had done some things with David as a duo with the acoustic... I remember I did a I did a, some shows with Lucinda Williams while I was playing stand up. Um, we opened for Warren Zevon here in New York. I remember that. But the stand up, like you know, that's not like the electric. Band. Oh, I know that. I've tried it. It's more like it's more like a violin. Like you got to kind of stay up on it, or else like your uh, you know like your intonation kind of will suck. <laughs> yeah. you know? So. Um, uh, I, but you know, like I'll always drag it out. You know, I'll always drag it out. Like you know, like the book of knots. It's so nice to have the acoustic bass because it's such a totally different vibe than electric. Do you bow? You know, you know who else I played a lot with. Um, there was a woman here in uh, in, uh, in uh, New York. Her name is Angel Dean. Her and I had a had a duo where we play like rockabilly and country tunes. Like we did that like for like a year, and then and then Bob called, and I kind of got got called away, um, and it wasn't in town enough. And uh, Angel went ahead and got got herself a band, but um, something country, I'll always be able to do that. Oh but, yeah, uh, you know, like playing jazz on on an acoustic bass, that's like a life's work. Yeah, and uh, you can't just step to that. You gotta. But you know what's nice? You know, man, you know what's really nice about the stand-up? Yeah. Even if you just have, like, a student model, and you get the bow, and you just sit there in your room and just bow the open strings. Yeah. It's like, it's a great thing for your brain, a great thing just for your music. And then also, when you get on the electric, the damn thing feels like a banjo. You know what? Oh, yeah. really scoot on it, you know? It's like uh, jogging at the beach and then exactly. getting on hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what I found really tough is like where the body meets the neck and your hands got to go sideways, different than the electric bass. Exactly, man. It's all the top of your hand. and Those muscles have to get really strong. Yeah, and, you know, there's no way, I mean, like, you know, I record these cats that come through, these young kids, they come in with these bases that are a couple hundred years old, cost ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000, and, like, those guys, 
they blow some bass, you know? Yeah. Like, those cats, like, they're rocking the bass, and it's always a pleasure to record someone like that. But seriously, you know, I would recommend to any bass player, you, know, you find a little, find a student-like model, and then just keep it around. Keep it around. It's, it's, Good for the heart and good for the soul. <laughs> yeah, to, to get make myself really have to learn. I made a record, a little single where I did stand up. It was so tough though, you know. But it is a beautiful instrument. I love the way the sound goes into you. What 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 electric basses you own now? Well, like my the three main basses that I mostly record with these days are like the P. Um, it's like a 58 reissue because my 66 Sunburst got stolen, sadly. Um, I got it like a, I got a Jazz, a 66 Jazz with the EMGs, just like the ones that you put in, uh, in, uh, in Cura's bass. Yeah. And, um, I got a Gibson EB2 with flat rounds for, uh, for dubbing it up. Yeah. And with Langford, I actually used one of those gold tone banjo basses. It's Real banjo, but with bass strings on it, and uh, it's got a pickup too. So you can mic it, have it sound like a banjo, or you can uh, use the pickup and it sounds kind of like a Beatle bass. Wow. Yeah, like kind of thumpy, like a cross between stand up and a Beatle bass. Wow. What are you using for amps? Well, you know, my favorite. My favorite speaker cab is always going to be the SVT, just because I love the way that thing honks. But uh, depending on the gig, like I'll use like a 15-inch EV and then a cabinet with uh, two 10-inch, uh, like like an Eden cabinet with the two 10s. Yeah, I got a few um, Or um, I got a sub that I'll rock once in a while on... I just want to tell you about one other project I got going on, the Gotchu Peen Band, which are a bunch of dudes from up here in Brooklyn. Um, and we're playing funk and kind of, you know, like we, we do a couple like things that are have a sort of like Moroccan flavor. We do a couple things that have like a Colombian rhythm. And when we, when we do like a show, we have like Colombian cat playing uh, percussion. We have... Uh, we have like a Brazilian cat playing percussion. We have a Brazilian horn player, and then three other horn players from here in New York, um, and uh, a drummer who, like our drummer Chris Michael, he travels all around the world and he'll study like music and bring back the instruments from the country. So it's fun. It's just this band of guys that are all kind of. Well, the drummer's not really a rocker, but the two guitar players and myself are all coming from the rock thing. But it's a chance for us to study these other rhythms and uh, and then play them. So we, we're just getting our records today. Like the drummer, actually, I'm getting my records tomorrow. So uh, I'm going to send you one of those. Oh, thank you. Can see, you can see what I've been up to here. How would you say your bass playing's changed over the years? Is it because the different cats you play with? Yeah, you know, I think. Uh, well, I remember, like, I never recorded to a click before, you know. But like with Bob's stuff, you know, a lot of Bob's songs, like he wrote to a drum machine, 
And so, of course, a drum machine, that's a click track. Yep. So, playing with Bob was the first time I'd, like, um, played that way. And uh, oh, what about with a pick? What's that? With a pick, a, plectra, a plectrum, yeah, they call it in exactly England. like with the pick and to the click, which is a different thing. And um, it took me a while to get used to that. But then with they might be giants, same thing. Sometimes the pick and also playing the stuff that was generated from, originally, like from like a like a, a drum track that was made in a in a computer. So. You know, in Uber, we never played the clicks. I mean, I know, I know you guys never did either. We tried it a couple of times in the studio. It was a nightmare. That cowbell in your uh, headphone just dong, dong, dong. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed pretty soon you'd have a twitch in your eye. <laughs> oh, and a ring in your ear. Yeah. You know what the really good drummers do is they'll like take the click themselves and they make like a little like hi-hatty, like tambourine kind of thing that is to the click, and then everybody tracks to that. Yeah. More than anything else, I think that that's changed, I mean, the groove. Like, I remember I did this thing with, uh, with Charles for this uh, James Brown um, tribute record. We did a... Yeah, I got a song a- on that, too. No, with, wait a minute. Which one are you on? Uh, with per- we're the last song. It's me, Perkins, and Money Mart doing it. Remember James Brown? Sometimes he'd hug the label with a song where he'd play organ. So we did one of them. Yeah. And we called the band Broke Dick Dog. <laughs> we got it from the Miles autobiography where he said, "If you were dressed real nice, he said you were cleaner than a broke dick dog." <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Miles, I love that autobiography of his. Yeah, that's wild. Like we did, we did popcorn. Which one did you guys do? Oh, I can't even remember the name, but it's it's an instrumental, you know. Yeah. So we're the last one on that record, and I remember you and Charlie's uh, tune. Yeah, popcorn. Yeah, so having to play that, man, you know, it kind of like brought me around. I mean, I've always dug reg- reggae and funk, um, but I think. Uh, you know, I'm always going to be a rocker, but I love I, I love the funk, you know, and I love like the fact that. Uh, what about R and B? Because you didn't mention James Jamerson. Were you ever listening to him? Oh God, yeah. Cause that cap had James a profound Jamerson, effect on me too. You know, James Jamerson, because see, man, I was go when I was going through high school. Every other song on the radio had James Jamerson as a bass player. <laughs> you know, like. Uh, you know, like that bass line, like in Bernadette, you know? Oh, yeah. That Four Tops tune. You know, all those Temptations songs, all those, um, all those Supreme songs. Uh, And even up to early 70s, he's on What's Going On. That's a huge record in my life. Yeah. That's one of the greatest bass lines ever. There's so many great bass players. You know what we should do? That's maybe it. for the next the next spiel, maybe we'll do one on bass players. Because, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, there's so many bass players that we got to give respect to. Yeah, absolutely. And we don't have the time today, but you know what? I think that would be a really fun one for us to do, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Oh, but there's another book of knots record. Right, Train Eater. That's the one that you're on, and Carla Boswich is on, and two uh, Pedro people. Yeah, man. Well, I think Carla Boswich is on that same James Brown record. She does a a version of Hot Pants. Yeah, it's really good. She's so funny, man. Yeah, I hear her song. She sounds like a cross between Patti Smith and Diamanda uh, Galash. Yeah. She's a great Just singer. Ripping and roaring. Um, so yeah, the second Train Eater, the second uh, Book of Notch record, Train Eater, um, we got the title from the story that my friend Tom Sullins, who took uh, the photo that is on the cover of, of the record, it's a, it, it, it's a cover... It, 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 it's a picture of a blast furnace. And uh, the blast furnace is, is the train eater because what they do with an old blast furnace, when they, you know, a blast furnace, they never turn it off. Right. When they finally turn it off and cut it up into pieces, what they'll do is they just throw the pieces and weld the pieces onto like a bunch of old train cars and then they'll just push all those train cars with all these pieces of the uh, the blast furnace welded to it into another blast furnace. So, hence the name, Train Eater. <laughs> and Carla Kilstead, our violinist, she sings one of the songs like where she takes on the character of the blast furnace, which she calls Old Number Six. It's going down. She's taking her last trip through town. Because basically, it's already been cut up. It's on the train. And they're pushing the train over to the other blast furnace. And, uh, you know, i got to say, Carla Kilstead, this, this lady, um, she's got a voice and, and, a, and a way of singing that is just so amazing. It's been so great to work with her. And, and our drummer, Matthias, is a great drummer. So we're, we're having fun with this band. And so we're... we're we finished our first record and we're like, okay, we gotta make a, we gotta make another record. Like, so what are we gonna make this record about? And we decide to make it about the Rust Belt. And this is like, a, you know, like your tune, Pedro to Cleveland. Uh, I couldn't ask for like a better. I couldn't have asked like for like a better way of uh, drawing like these these juxtapositions between Cleveland and Pedro. There's so many things that are common to both of our, our hometowns. You know, like, there's a lot, there's water, there's a lot of water, there's like, the, there's, the, there's the trains and the ships, and there's all this movement and all this industry, but you have the beauty, you know, of the water there as well. Right. So, um, and the way we made this record, you know, like um, like with you, like what well, I made those uh, so that little ambient piece of music just to give you something to work off of, and then you sent your stuff back to us, and uh, like I was telling you on the phone, we were trying to like do something else, like to kind of put it into the fold of the record, and. Uh, we ended up taking almost everything off except some of the sounds and your vocals and wrote a whole other piece of music for it. Yeah, so I really... The Train Eater 
we're, we're not afraid to go, you know what, this worked last month, but it's not working this month, so let's do something else. <laughs> Into the blast <laughs> furnace. <laughs> it's really, really good. And, uh, you know, like with Rick Moody, the guy who does the last piece, the second last piece on the record, um, he writes this song about a company town and a wife that used to love the town, but now she hates the town because of what's happened, you know, and how, like, this this fictional company, Hewlett Smithson, was everything to the people in the town, but then Hewlett Smithson left, and now there was no more jobs for people. And um, there's a whole cast of characters. John Langford does a, a song about about his hometown, Newport, Wales, talking about the, the Russian sailors and the, uh, you know, the the, uh, the 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 lady who owns the uh, the ship, the fish and chips joint, and uh, and the prostitutes down at the pool hall, and all these things that he experienced when he grew up. Um, so. And then, uh, and then Tom Waits does a song. Like we sent him, he, he liked one of our songs, so he said, "Send it to me on a four-track cassette." So we had to put the music on one track of a four-track cassette. Then apparently, what Tom and his wife Kathy did, they went in the bathroom and sang in the shower to the four-track. <laughs> and then he put some guitar on it, and then sent the tape back to us. So then we took those tracks off of the cassette and put them back in the Pro Tools, you know? Right. So, uh... <laughs> Into the blast furnace. <laughs> I got a funny note from him. You know, just doing that much, like for Tom Waits, I guess was like really challenging. He says, he sent me this note where he goes, sorry it's taken me so long, but I've been in technical hell. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, he had like uh, John's uh, songs called Boomtown. Yeah, John Langford, man, that's like that's a really special cat. Yeah, yeah, an artist too. We've been doing stuff with John too. I've been out on the road with John, uh, supporting uh, you know uh, these uh, these organizations that are trying to abolish the death penalty here in the United States. Um, you know what the scariest thing about the death penalty is? The scariest thing about the death penalty is the fact that there's a 50-50 chance that you could be killing the wrong guy because maybe he did it, maybe he didn't. It's like so many men on death row um, are there like on circumstantial evidence. Yeah. I mean, that's one really bad thing about it. The other really bad thing about it is is killing a man doesn't bring the other person back. Yeah. So it's really, really wrong. And um, John made a made a bunch of records, and I've contributed to some of those records uh, with a band called the Pine Valley Cosmonauts. And the proceeds from those records went to the people who were organizing against uh, against uh, the, the capital punishment in Illinois. And it got uh, that got abolished. There is no more. Uh, there is no more capital punishment in the state of Illinois. And um, 
We were just out in Montana, and uh, the Senate voted there to abolish the death penalty, and so now it's got to go to the House. And we were also out in Seattle where um, a bunch of people are trying to get the death penalty um, you know, abolished in Seattle, but the, the governor there isn't, uh, isn't letting it happen. And uh, you know, she's a Democrat. I don't know what her name is, but... Um, you know, politicians are afraid to rock the boat. They're afraid to look like they're soft on crime, which is ludicrous, man. It's like, um, you know, the death penalty and being soft on crime, two totally separate things. Yeah. So I'd like to, I'm really happy, you know, and, and proud to be working on something like that with, with someone and uh, working with John. Know, lets me do that. Do you guys uh, record at the G Studio G? Well, like um, the, the name of our band is the Ship and Pilot, and we've got like six songs that we recorded um, that we're in the process of working on now. Damn. Yeah, man, I've had some fun people at Studio G, man. I you think working in the Ella? studio? Oh, has, what's that? What's that, Mike? You think working in the studio, you know, on the other side of the glass, has changed the way you do bass? Oh, yeah. Because of the Definitely. perspective? Yeah. Yeah, so much. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, I see some, like, young kid in there playing bass, and, uh, you know, one minute he's hitting the strings really hard, and the next minute he's playing them kind of soft, and... You know, so there I am, I'm looking at the dude through the glass and I'm thinking, now, you know, this is this dude's bass part. He worked on this part. I can't just hit the talk button and go, yo, don't hit the bass so hard. That's not going to be good. You have to try to, you know, you, I come up with, you come up with ways to kind of help someone see that, you know, to really get your bass to sweat the cones, you don't really need to smack it. But if you need to smack it, and if you need to smack it to make it happen, then I'm going to work with you on that. However, if you're smacking it one minute and then playing it really soft the next minute, it's not going to make for a recording that's as complimentary to your, your bass part as you might think it is. And it's just, and it's just, so it's perspective. So like, just perspective. You using that experience when you got the bass in your hand, are you thinking those things? Because uh, this is a problem I've had. I'm so close to my machine, you know. It's hard to know the other world or the rest of the world. <laughs> but the thing is, is now, dudes, dudes have like inboxes at home. Like kids got Pro Tools at home. Yeah. And they can plug their bass in themselves. And they can see that, like, when you pick your hand up and go bam and hit that E string, that that makes a, that makes a wave that the computer records. And then when, like, you go up on the G string and play a couple notes up there with your fingers, that makes another kind of waveform. And I would think that that same kind of... Um, recognition, that same kind of knowledge um, that I have sitting in front of a computer 
it's up for grabs now. Yeah. I mean, digital recording is definitely in the hands of the masses. And, like, that's what I would tell anybody that's going in the studio. It's like, before you go into the studio, grab yourself a four-track. It can be a cassette four-track, or now they got the digital ones, or you can even get, like, a little Pro Tools rig. They're pretty cheap now. Like, an M-Box, you can get a used M-Box for 200 bucks and turn your laptop into a computer. Yeah, yeah. Because nothing makes, I don't think anything makes a bass player or any kind of a musician a better player than playing. Like, the more you play, like you say, like you're close, you feel so close to your machine, like the more, you, the more we play, the tighter we get with our instruments. And I would say the second most important thing is to record yourself. Because if you come up with a cool lick, go ahead and throw it down on anything. You can throw it down on the cheapest cassette player money can buy, or you can put it into any kind of little digital recording program, garage band, anything, because you're going to learn when you record yourself what you do on your machine, like what the implications of that um what, what the implications are to, to the recording. And that's like where people can learn on their own time instead of spending the big bucks at the studio. It's like record the band, you know, record yourself. Like the more you record, the better, the better understanding you have of the recording process. Just like the better understanding you have of your bass, the more you play. Right. So for me... Getting on the other side of the glass has been like truly, um, like really, really changed my way of just the way I realized it. And it's so funny too, Mike, because look at all the records you make, you know, and you'd think you'd learn something there, and you do learn something there, but not as much as sitting there yourself and recording yourself or recording like your drummer or recording your guitar player just with a 57 you know yeah but i also think you got a great perspective from coming from many years and many gigs many uh you know it's a that's that that can't be just done you know it has i mean it can't be just uh brought forth it has to be done so exactly. uh you're in a unique situation and i think you got a lot to share with people tony i want to thank you a lot for coming aboard and uh, sharing some of this stuff with uh, the listeners and myself. Man, Mike, it's always so great talking to you. So maybe uh, when the seasons change a couple of times, we'll get back together and we'll talk about some more stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and I can't wait to do some recording at Studio G. Whoa. <laughs> I will. Wow. <laughs> Mike, that's going to be fun. <laughs> just let me know when you want to come, and I'll, and I'll clear the time, man. That's just going to be for old time's sake and for no other reason. All right. <laughs> Great. Well, I got a tour to, I got to leave for a tour tomorrow and getting ready here. Thanks again for being on a Watt from Pedro show. And, and like I said, sharing great stuff. All the... I owe you so much for all the years, so thank you. And then all the stuff to come. Hey, man, love to you, brother Mike.
big love back, Tony.
Watt from Pedro Show. That was now with song. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> now, before that, we had a little Johnny Jewel from television, um, something live. First time they went to Cleveland in 1975. Uh, Tony was saying something about that gig, a place called Piccadilly Inn. I guess he was a bartender there (laughs) during the time. And, of course, before that, we had the second part of the interview I did with him this morning. (coughs) Sorry. A little bit of hack, a little bit. I mean, he has another cigarette now. The rest of that spiel with Tony. And uh, he's a great brother, man. And I'm glad he took the time out there to spiel with us all here. Um, yeah, tomorrow I leave uh, for D.C. Uh, because the Stooges tour starts there Thursday. And hopefully early Thursday I'll get a chance to walk around the uh, by the Jefferson Memorial there because uh, there's like Almost 7,000 cherry trees and uh, it's the last day of the peak blossom period, you know, for the our version of Sakura. So um, that'll be a trip. Uh, uh, hold tight for our three. Walk from Pedro Show, April 3rd, 2007. April 3rd, 2007. Third hour of the Walk from Pedro Show. Here's part 10 of Jack Flanders. And the ghost islands. No, there's nothing here. It's empty. I don't know about that. Hello? Anyone? Just us chickens. It's empty, Mocho. I don't think so. Uh, What are you seeing that I'm not? It's not what you see. It's what you feel. There's stuff in here. Furniture, books. There's a lot of stuff. Macho, it's bare. No, I, I feel chairs. And there's a table over there. Show me a chair. There's one right here. Well, okay. I'd like to see you sit down on it. <laughs> I need more than a char root to do that. So it's not solid, but but it's here? You can pass your hand through it. But if we stayed here a while, I bet you'd be able to sit down. Wait a minute. I think I I am beginning to see things, but it it feels like I'm seeing them behind me. That's right. You start with what you can sense behind you, and then what you can see out of the sides of your eyes, and finally to where you can look at it straight on. So I have to unfocus so I can focus. They've even got paintings hanging on the walls. God, you're, you're right. I can see them. Have you looked out that back window here? I know. Why? Come over here. Take a look. What do you see? See if you see what I see. It's the ocean. But which ocean? We can't see the ocean from here. We're in a valley. But you're seeing something. I I can even hear it. Let me see if the outside has changed since we've been inside. I sure hope not. No, nothing's changed out here. Well, that's a relief. I think. I'm getting the feeling that uh, we're not alone. 
Are we being watched? Maybe they can feel us from a distance? Mojo, this is all very interesting, but we have to find Bunny. Now, time is running out. I don't feel she's here. I think she's somewhere else. Let me try to reach Claudine again. I never asked to be Jean-Darc. I don't think they're planning to roast you. Why are you like this? Why aren't you frightened? They're awaiting for us. Yes, of course. They want to feed off us. Look at how many there are now. If Jack were here, he'd say you are too thin for them to eat. Don't you see? In this cave, everyone else is a mummy. There's no meat. Chloe, uh, are you there? Jack, I'm here. Are you okay? They have found us. Did she say thousands? Have you found the bunny? No, and time is running out. I know. I'm going to talk to the Lucanuna. They want to eat us. No, they do not. Dominique, you're too skinny. <laughs> See, what did I say? Dominique. Mojo, are you coming to help us? I'll tell you what you gotta do. What? Tell me. If you hear them chanting, Ooga Booga, Ooga Booga, what you do is look down at your sneakers and you say, Feet don't fail me now. <laughs> We're coming, but it's going to take a while. In less than a while, we will be joining the honored ones. Do you understand? No, but listen, just just stay put and we'll get there as soon as we can. Mojo, what do you think? I don't know. What's the honored ones? Beats me. I think where they are is over at, at that end of the island. Well, maybe I'm turned around, but I think it's that way. Oh, great. What are you doing? I'm going to talk to them. Jack said wait here. If we wait in here, we will vanish with the island. Do you see how many there are? Do you see how they are pulsing? Light or darker, light or darker. Then stay there. Jack? Mojo? Anyone? What the hell? Claudine, uh, are you there? Jack, she is one of them. What is that? She is speaking in their fuzzy tongue. Do you mean Claudine? She is out there talking to them. Well, tell her to ask them how long before we all disappear. Man, this is getting weirder all the time. Can't you hear me? Claudine is one of them. Now, we're on our way. Yeah, but which way? Shut up. Hang on, Dominique. We'll be there soon. Who'd have thought you could speak fuzzy tongue? My, my. Mojo, it's starting to get light. We ought to be able to see San Miguel from up here, but I don't see it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I think this island is saying, San Miguel, adios. Oh, it's not looking good. Dominique, come out here. No. It's safe. You're one of them? Are you? <laughs> do I look fuzzy? Why do you know their language? I don't have time to explain. We have to hurry. What are they? 
Neither. Dominique, please. The island is disappearing. Please. You're not one of them? No, I am not. All right, I'm coming. Dominique, this is Una Kunka. Uluka Tonu. Bangalutu. Did he say Okapoka? <laughs> no. Una. Lugamutugo? Managa. Come on, Dominique. They'll take us to Bunny. Come on. We have to run. The ground feels funny. Come on. You can run faster than that. I beg the stiff. Oh, we have to keep up. I'm running after them? Come on. Come on. They're leaving us behind. Oh, I could that fast too if what I did was float above the ground.
Okay, we started out the third hour with part 10 of Jack Flanders in the Ghost Islands. Only one more part to go, so stay tuned for that thrilling conclusion. Jack trips his way through another adventure. Then we had uh, Don't Think, Feel by Funky Gong. And then (laughs) Stupid by Yumi Yumi. You know, that should be my theme song. Last show I played uh, Idiot by Yumi Yumi, and uh, maybe both of them, you know? My first and middle name. No, Stupid will be the first one, Idiot the middle one. (laughs) So that'd be Stupid Idiot Watt. Wouldn't that be a better name for me? (laughs) Here's a great band from Holland called The X, Watt from Pedro Show. You know how it feels when you're standing at the gates and the doors are locked and everybody hesitates, hesitates to open their minds, to raise some blinds, to take an opportunity to see what's going on outside. Who says, open the border, open the border, smell the low end odor of the universal, uniformal, unified, forthright dream come true of a badass painter. What's it gonna be this time? A creepy suit dictator, a business boom creator, a high rise simulator. Walls might fall down, but it's a dig the decorator. You talk about pollution, talk about pollution, this is no solution. This is the fusion of con man, the fusion of con man in a world of confusion. And I want no choice of walking on white. Or Black Street or dance to a one-way blurry gray Dead and beat or somebody telling me What to do, what to do, what to do or who to meet If I want to make a stand it's on my own two feet And I seriously believe in things are spontaneous People all around me being simply miscellaneous That should be obvious No need for boring faces in a nag-nag oasis Who don't like nothing but the safe stupid places
giving us your opinion of the John Birch Society. Are you a member? That's what I was going to ask you, whether you are, and if you are, are you? not, what your opinion was. Are you a member? I'm not sure that that's significant at this point. I'm not sure that your question's significant. No, I'm not a member. I am a member.
activities are creating an unhealthy, divisive, and dangerous Lot from Pedro Show. Started that one with Livewire by the X. Then we had Corny Love Song from Frog Women. Has some music from Italy there. Uh, then uh, something from Hollywood, I think. The Illuminoids, who do this thing called Mashup, where you um, yeah take two songs and mash them together. <laughs> Sort of what Danger Mouse did with the, what was that thing called? The Grey Record or something? He took a Jay-Z Black album and did it with Beatles' White Album or something. <laughs> anyway, that was called Forming You, and there's a Ramon song and a Germ song there. They do one with somebody else, Eminem uh, and somebody. I think we were talking about last show. With uh, those guys, they wrote me an email to come on the show. They're nice cats, though. Uh, Stefan and uh, James. Yeah. Uh, then uh, you just heard "Are You a Member?" by now, I don't know how do you pronounce this. They're from France. And it's spelled P-Z-L-E-N. So, Pzlen? 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 I don't know. Uh, coming up now, I got uh, uh, Tommy from um, Estelle, this great Irish band uh, from Dublin. Ireland. Uh, he's a guitar player and he's got his own project now called Deep in the Woods 66. And here's a tune from him called uh, Dunno.
It's going to be uh, over the internet on uh, NPR, National Public Radio, npr.org, and they'll probably be archived. So uh, here us do the cherry gig for the tour. Hey, cherry blossoms, cherry gig. That's great. And then, you know, I got this other project coming in May, May 6th, in Brentwood. Somebody's pad. Uh, but it's with Petra. I have a new duo with her. A twofer band called Pelican Man. And uh, I've been waiting a long time uh, to start. I did a duet with her last year sometime, but writing songs uh, for her and stuff. And uh, she's going to start composing too, which is kind of new for her. She's always uh, done other people's music, so uh, very interesting. Petra's quite a talent with singing and, um, of course, with um, violin too. And uh, she's working on a solo album, another one, a cappella about show tunes, and uh, movie songs, movie themes, not show tunes. <laughs> Should be show tunes, not Pet. And I also got some Missing Men and Dose when I get back, too. Oh, yeah, Missing Men gets to open for Melt Banana. Uh, I know the boss man in Sacto putting on the gig, and uh, I played with them before, and they're an intense, extremely intense band. And uh, I think I played with them in Orlando, and we got them up on, I think it was with a pair of pliers, Vince and Tom. And we got him on stage to do Bob Dylan wrote propaganda songs with us, but it was a trip for them. I don't think they knew where we were. They were playing along, though, somehow. Um, let's see here. We uh, maybe should play some more music, huh? Oh, yeah, here's a song this cat uh, said he was, uh, yeah, kind of riffing on history lesson. Uh, the, the second one, the, the one on double nickels. Oh, uh, speaking of double nickels, uh, there's a new book out about it. You know, you know, part of that 33 and a third series where people write about an album. And this cat came to Pedro from Boston, uh, Michael uh, Fournier. Fournier. I wonder how you pronounce that. Sorry, Michael. 
a very nice man and very uh, into the record and asked me a lot of stuff about it. And uh, it's coming out. You can go to the Hoot page. There's a place to uh, do orders on it. And let's see. Let's see. That's not a book, but it's a magazine. I'm on the cover of uh, Bass Player. Oh, yeah. You know, at the end, yeah, this is embarrassing because I must have been uh, the writer man, Brian. I must have been mumbling or screwing something up because it's all out of context. I got to write him about that because especially the Funanori stuff where I'm, I'm discussing that, it it's not what I meant, you know. Um uh, wasn't talking about that kind of music doesn't have time. It was like I couldn't hold time. <laughs> I play like it's a rubato. And I don't think it's a crazy shamsin uh, or shansin is a crazy Jap banjo, you know. It's a beautiful instrument and it's beautiful music. These This Okinawa traditional song CD uh, I got, Miss Kaori, you know, I'm trying to learn from it, and it it seems kind of uh, like I'm uh, I don't know, kind of weirding on it. But I meant to pay tribute and stuff. So, but it was very nice of the bass player people to talk to me and have me on there like that. I I guess I just talk like an idiot sometimes. You know, I, I was afraid to. I'm always afraid to read those things till uh, they come out, and then. Uh, or, or even way after they come out, I mean, because they usually don't run them by you first. But uh, even when I got it, I hadn't read the thing until uh, this morning, and uh, it was like, oh, man. <laughs> but most of it's okay. I, you know, I didn't stumble over myself too much. I think the whole idea of bass for me is a way to help me learn about life and, you know, and I'm always going to be learning, and that's why I was trying to get across to people about it. I've just been lucky to play with some incredible, generous people, and I'm very grateful for that. So anyway, uh, here's this young man. Uh, uh, his band is the the New Preach Baby Exchange. <laughs> A lot from Pedro Show. The windshield was cracked, and there was a tuba in the back seat. No AC, but the tape deck was good. So we cruised through the streets of Sarasota with the windows rolled down, blasting Maynard Ferguson, or the new chemical people. I can't remember which. To the casual observer, we were just driving in circles. Just a couple of young punks in a car with nothing to do. But it wasn't true. Me and Scott Ward, we were looking for someone with a record player. We decided we'd swing by his grandpa's place. His grandpa gave us boys Coca-Cola, took us out to the carport where the turntable was, collecting dust. We plopped down in a couple of old lawn chairs and commenced to reclining as the needle dropped on Scott's new 7-inch. It was Black Flag, playing Louie Louie. When the song was over, Scott's grandpa got up, 
carefully lifted the record off the spindle. He cleared his throat, <clears throat> shook his head, and said, You know, these are different times. People nowadays don't think their song's any good unless they got all them dirty words in it. Me? I prefer Glenn Miller. Was, uh, that was a trip. Uh, it's called S- "Still Shaking It, Boss" by Rothschild Agent. <laughs> and before that, uh, we had uh, "History Lesson" nineteen ninety five by the New Preach Baby Exchange. And uh, yeah, we're coming to the end of another Watt from Pedro show. Uh, the April. Third, 2007 edition, before I bail for the tour, uh, I'm bringing the uh, snowball mic, and with the aluminum purse, I'll be able to do some uh, lot from Pedro shows from the road there, and hopefully uh, Scotty and uh, Steve McKay, and uh, yeah, maybe Ronnie, so, uh, other folks uh, will join me. And uh, get to uh, give you uh, some radio show from a Stooges store kind of experience or something. Um, I'm looking forward to it. It's our first full uh, U.S. tour. Well, yeah, full for the Stooges, I guess. It's the month of April. And uh, hopefully we come back around and do the Towns and Miss, which is quite a few. I mean, it's not like a Watt tour. But still, I'm... Big time looking forward to it and gonna play my heart out. Hope to see you out there. Uh, keep your powder dry. <laughs>